0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the On Meaningful Work podcast. This is your host Rahul Sones, uh, and today we have a, an incredibly special episode. Uh, we've got Simon Griffiths, who is the CEO and co-founder of Who Gives a Crap, the Aussie B Corp that sells good-looking, forest-friendly toilet paper, paper towels, and tissues direct to you guys, the consumer. Now, Who Gives a Crap donates fifty percent of their profits to help build toilets for those in need. Uh, as much as Simon loves toilet paper, he helped start the business for its impact, uh, with the company on a mission to improve access to hygiene, clean water, and basic sanitation in developing countries. Since founding the company back in 2013, Who Gives a Crap has donated more than $10 million, which is incredible. Uh, now, this is, uh, we cover a lot in this episode from Simon's childhood in Perth his first jobs, his motivations for getting into the social sector and social entrepreneurship and how the uh, legendary Who Gives a Crap came to be. It's an amazing journey and I hope you enjoy this episode. Thank you for listening. Hey Simon, welcome to the On Meaningful Work podcast.
1: Yeah, great to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, thanks so much for doing this, man. And um, you, know, you know, before I jump in, I- I've got to ask. You know, um, you know, we just went through this massive pandemic, twenty twenty. The world went crazy. The toilet paper went crazy. Uh, so, being the head of a toilet paper company, how's how's that for you?
1: Um, it was totally wild I think you know two <laughs> things happened toilet paper as you said as you put it went crazy but also supply chains then went crazy after that so um, it's been a real roller coaster for us um, but yeah the you know that that first kind of three months of the pandemic was was pretty wild I think we built up a, a wait list of half a million people a bit more than half a million people um, and that's a really hard business problem to solve as an inventory business because you know that you'll never have enough stock to be able to email half a million people saying, hey, come and buy from us because you will be <laughs> sold out as soon as that email goes out. Um, and so, yeah, we ended up, I think, sort of coming back to our purpose in that, in that period. We talk about um, our purpose being this North Star that keeps us sailing straight when the sailing's good, but mm-hmm. it's also this anchor that grounds us and holds us steady when the sailing gets rough. And in that period, you know, I think the sailing got pretty rough for everyone around the world. But but, um, for us, it also got rough at work. Um, And so, you know, the team, I think, knew that if they could figure out how to get toilet paper to the most people possible, because we donate half of our profits, it would result in this amazing donation come end of financial year. And so everyone worked really hard trying to figure out how to break the back of that problem and did an amazing job. And I think we broke, you know, probably every email marketing metric that's ever been Set as a record, I think we had something like a, um, a seventy or eighty percent open rate on our emails. Like it was, it was mind-bogglingly high. Um, and you know, the cherry on top of everyone's hard work, coming up to the end of that period, was being able to make a five point eight five million dollar donation at the end of the financial year. Um, and so that was, you know, just a, a really nice pat on the back um, for everyone that had been involved. And and it was one of those amazing moments where. Everyone really truly understood how the work that they were doing today was going to help us achieve that that donation at the end of the financial year. So, the connection to our purpose was just incredibly strong, which was um, an amazing thing.
0: That, that's that's incredible. I can just, uh, if this was a movie, I can just picture the montage. You know, if all of you guys from yeah. Crazy. You know, <laughs> yeah, I think
1: there's yeah, I think there's like there's pictures of our customers who'd ordered too much product who were making like you know, thrones out of toilet paper that went viral kind of, we saw it in, you know, seven different languages all around the world. Um, so yeah, it was a, you know, it was a real moment in time.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And did you, did you do a bit of diagnosis as to why that happened? Like why the toilet paper? Yeah. Why toilet paper?
1: Yeah. It's a really interesting, um, interesting phenomenon. So the easiest way to explain it is that it's mostly rational behavior, which is what people get shocked by because it seemed like it was completely irrational by the end. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but what actually happens is there's two markets for toilet paper. There's the at-home market, which is the soft, you know, fluffy three-ply stuff that, that we sell and that you probably have in your bathroom. And there's the away from home market, which is that horrible one ply kind of mm-hmm. waxy, you know, terrible stuff. And those two markets, are they're kind of roughly the same size. But when the mm-hmm. pandemic hit, you know, people weren't going to the bathroom any more often, but the bathroom they were going to shifted to being mm-hmm. 100% at home. And there wasn't enough product in the market to support that, that shift. Um, and so when you think about what happens, you know, people are like, oh, I'm going to be at home. We're almost out of toilet paper. I need to go to the shops. And then um, if that too many people do that, you know, toilet paper is one of the first items that sells out in supermarkets because you can't actually fit that much of it on the shelf compared to, you know, shampoo or food, which takes up much, much less room. Um, Mm -hmm. And so as a result, um, you can fit less of it in the store and you have less of it in your warehouse. And so it's one of the first items that sells out when you get a surge in demand in the supermarkets. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, the rational behavior is that if you see an empty toilet paper shelf and this Mm -hmm. commoditized item that's always been readily available is Mm -hmm. now no longer available, the rational behavior is to buy whatever pack you see when you see it. And so Mm -hmm. that's when it starts to spin into this irrational kind of, you know, version of the world, which is what I think everyone remembers through that period. But it comes from a really rational place of, you know, um, we're going to be at home more, We need to go to the shops and buy more products. That product's one of the first that runs out, and that's when it starts to drive this irrational behaviour that got amplified with social media as people were posting photographs of empty shelves.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I think not just photographs, but just people, you know, fighting over toilet paper, and you know, yeah, chaos for for mad minute there.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it was it was wild, and it was interesting seeing. You know, we we have suburb level data, so we could see. Mm -hmm where it was taking off and um, you know um, where the panic was kind of happening um, in a way that you know probably no one else could Um, Mm. and so yeah it was really interesting kind of you know from a um, behavioral economics perspective seeing how that all kind of unfolded was you know we were kind of gobsmacked watching it all happen (laughs)
0: yeah (laughs) yeah what what i mean what, what an incredible place to be in at that time for you guys
1: you know. yeah i mean we sort of we sort of joked at the time that you know we were a direct consumer business that had a remote team mm-hmm. and so it was almost like we'd been training for that moment for the six or seven years prior and it was yeah. it was our time <laughs> to shine you know like we we had this moment where we could show the world what we could really do so um yeah it was it was really interesting i think you know obviously um there was a lot of really bad things going on in the world that led to that point so it's mm-hmm. hard to kind of look at that time with, you know, kind of <laughs> a favorable lens, but, yeah. um, yeah, you know, and obviously it was a really hard time for our beneficiaries. You know, the big picture view that we had was guys like there's 2 billion people that don't have access to a toilet, let alone, you know, being concerned about running out of toilet paper, like, <laughs> come on, like there's, <laughs> there's kind of a, you know, a, a bit of a zoom out moment here that I think everyone mm-hmm. needed to, to have, Um, but at the same time, you know, it, it brought a lot of our customers closer to their community because they had these huge, you know, 48 roll boxes that we were sending Mm. them that meant that they had enough product to give to their neighbors and make sure everyone around them was, was doing okay. So, um, yeah, yeah, it was, I think it led to some nice outcomes as well as some, you know, some not so nice moments that happened along the way.
0: Yeah. Wow. Um, so, so maybe, you know, rewinding quite a bit now. So, uh. Just to start with, with your you know origin story, um, where where are you from? Where are you born?
1: Um, so I was born in in London, in in, um, in West London, in a place called Acton, um, mm-hmm. in um, in the early nineteen eighties. And I, my understanding, I don't, I haven't actually asked my parents too much about it. But my understanding was that um, that was not London's prime time. <laughs> you know, it, was, it was kind of kind of kind of one of London's less less prime time moments, you know, the Mm eighties in London, I think weren't super great, um, in terms of, you know, the long history of what it's been like to live in that city, obviously relative to other parts of the world that had, you know, wars and stuff going on at that moment in time, it was still pretty good. Um, Mm -hmm. but my, yeah, my dad, my dad sort of said, you know what, like, I think there's kind of a better, a better quality of life that we can maybe get if we are able to, to immigrate and spend some time in Australia. And so, he was a consultant, he built up enough work in Western Australia, and so we moved mm-hmm. over when I was four years old um, and um, yeah, mum and dad I think mum convinced Dad to go for two years and then we'd mm-hmm. go back and then at the end of that two years they said let's go back for a holiday because we're going to come back for another two years after that and mm-hmm. another two years and it's now indefinitely extended to you know another <laughs> two years <laughs>
0: and that um, was in, in both in
1: that was in Perth, yeah. So mum and dad are still over there. Um, I you know grew up there, left left home just after I turned seventeen, um, mm-hmm. and went and um, went back to the UK and actually got to know my family, which felt like a missing link for me, having um, not spent that much time with them. Uh, so I spent a year over there, which was a really formative year for me, and then moved to Melbourne, where I studied um, studied at the University of Melbourne. And awesome. now, based in Victoria, but but outside of the city, in the in the you know, what's what I think is regional, but technically is still part of metropolitan Melbourne on the Mornington Peninsula.
0: <laughs> oh, beautiful! Yeah, that's a great spot to be in. Um, yeah,
1: yeah, it's been great.
0: Yeah. And, and were you were you in were you in, in Mornington during the during the pandemic?
1: Yeah, we were, which you know became one of those kind of hotspots. A lot of people were kind of moving to. Um, we've been down here since 2015. So, so our kind of long-term view when we bought our house down here, um, you know, we were really stretched financially kind of buying a house. It wasn't Mm -hmm. easy. Houses are cheaper down here. Um, or they were, I don't know where they're at now. Um, but our long-term view was that, you know, this, this house had more value to us than anyone else because Mm -hmm. we were both self-employed. We were able to work remotely, um, we truly believed that you know as um the future of work kind of unfolded as self-driving vehicles came, kind of came into the market mm-hmm. um that you know property prices in the in the areas that are 1 hour out of melbourne would dramatically increase um yep. and so we felt like we could sort of stretch financially to to buy a, a house outside mm-hmm. of the city that would sort of come back and pay for itself in about 15 years time and um that fifteen-year thesis, you know, paid off um, five years later when COVID hit, and all of a sudden, remote Everyone work, you know, not, became yeah. the norm. <laughs> yeah, wow, that's. Yeah. Um, I
0: think this is your your maybe your economics training coming coming into play. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, I mean, uh, you know, yeah, I guess I, um, yeah, I think I think slightly differently to most people, maybe. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, so, so moving back to, to Perth for a second. So, you, you did your schooling in in Perth, obviously. Um, yeah so yeah what were you like in school like were you did you like school were you did you do well
1: um I was always a bit of a you know a bit of a like i, I think you know- ref, reflecting on this recently, I probably realized that most of my life i've actually felt like a bit of an outsider <laughs> like i'm a bit different to most people <laughs> um, and um and that sort of played out a bit in school not not that i didn't have friends but I just never you know, I had lots of different friendship groups, um, and was sort of friends with, um, yeah, with a variety of different people, whether that was, you know, the nerds or the cool kids, I could kind of play both of those, those, those games, those camps, um, somewhat. Um, and so, yeah, school was great. You know, I went to, to public schools, um, learned, a lot. I was that kid at school that kind of sold stuff to, to people, Um, and My entrepreneurial streak was, was pretty strong from a young age. Um, um, yeah, which was good.
0: (laughs) What what do you, what do you, looking back at that time, what do you, I suppose, attribute that entrepreneurial
1: streak to, were were your parents entrepreneurs or, um, they're both self-employed. I don't know if they would call themselves entrepreneurs, you know, they both kind of ran their own, um, sort of businesses, dad as a management consultant, Mum as, a psychoanalyst and then they sort of had you know small kind of um side businesses on on the side with you know almost like a kind of co-working style office space with kind of shared (laughs) shared offices in a in a in a um a house that that they that they bought and kind of rented um Mm. so yeah i don't know if they would call themselves entrepreneurs i honestly i don't know i think there was um you know, I've, I've always been someone that was fascinated by brands and mm-hmm. money and capitalism, um, but also something about it never felt quite right until, you know, I kind of ended up finding this blend between capitalism and, you know, maybe socialism. I don't know what you'd want to call it. Um, and, doing good in um, the world. Yeah. yeah, doing good in the world. <laughs> maybe that's not socialism, but... but um, mm. Yeah, the... You know, so I think the... Um, yeah, that, that was kind of there from a young age. Um, and I loved, you know, I worked, I worked lots of part-time jobs as a kid. I always had a lot of money because I worked, you know, really hard from a young age, kind of outside of school. Um, Mm. and that taught me a lot about kind of the value of money and transactions. And, um, I was, you know, really fascinated by brands and the the dopamine you got when you buy something and open a box, which I said that to someone the other day and they said, I don't get that. (laughs) But for me, you know, when I open, when I open something, like I get a, I get a like rush from it. Um, And so a lot of the work that I do now is actually about like, how do you take those very powerful moments where you deliver that dopamine, but, but Mm -hmm. instead of it being from buying an iPhone or something, it's coming from buying goods Mm -hmm. that you actually need, like, like toilet paper or shampoo or, You know a sponge like how can you kind of deliver those moments um and and have that extra kind of value from the product come through in everyday products rather than things that are luxury purchases that happen you know infrequently um with with goods that we arguably don't really need like do we need the new iphone or was the nokia actually pretty good and, and bulletproof and could still be running today.
0: Yeah. I had a Nokia for about 10 years, I think that, that thing never, never died. It was, it was
1: yeah. <laughs> yeah. i you know, I still think about whether it would be better to go back to, to the Nokia, but um, i there was a period where I tried it and I used to have to call up my dad to ask him to look at Google maps for me to find out where I was. <laughs> um, so there were some impracticalities that, yeah. that came from having it as well
0: that's true i couldn't live without google maps i'd be forever lost but but um but but maybe you thinking back to your your little uh, entrepreneurial streak as a kid what what were you doing entrepreneurially were you did you have a lemonade stand or were you uh
1: i would have tried a lemonade stand at one point i can't remember like specifically how that one played out yeah. um you know one of the kind of one of the more lucrative enterprises was selling sandboards, You know, in Western Australia, there's no snow, but there's lots of sand dunes. And so we grew up, you know, um, right next to a really big sand dune actually. And so we would make these, you know, boards out of laminated plywood that we'd glue and bend and then um, put a a laminate kind of surface on the bottom of it and you'd wax it and then it would fly down the sand dune kind of like a snowboard. Um, Mm -hmm. And I figured out that, you know, essentially going direct to consumer, I was able to undercut all of the boards that were sold in retail outlets with something that was, you know, just as good quality. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I sold boards to numerous, you know, friends and, um, and made you know, quite a bit of money doing that, which was, was a wow. bit of fun. Um, so that was kind of one venture that sort of took off. Um, I think I like tried like reselling Coke at school for, um, you know, like, slim margins on a -hmm. low value purchase that wasn't this is is Coca-Cola, yeah. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Um um, yeah, good good call out. It was it was (laughs) Coca-Cola. Um but yeah, there was there was all sorts of stuff in there. Um so it was, you know, that was like a great way to understand more about um how people place value on items and um Mm -hmm. I think one of the interesting things that I found from it was that you know, particularly selling sandboards, I actually got left with this feeling of guilt after every sale, where I was like, "I can't believe they paid that much money for it. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's you know truly worth that much. What if it you know comes apart?" Um, mm-hmm. And so there was there was a lot of kind of anxiety that came from that transaction. Um, and so one of the big breakthrough moments for me, you know, later on in life, was actually realizing that if um, I could start to feel better about, you know, business and transacting with someone if I started to push social outcomes into, into the transactions themselves. Um, and mm. so that's kind of obviously what, you know, who gives a crap's all about, but, sure. but really what I spent a lot of my time after university kind of thinking mm. about.
0: So maybe at that time, um, say thinking back, what would you, I suppose, attribute your social conscience to like, like, uh, why did you feel this need to incorporate that into... or this this guilt that you felt for, you know, just taking people's money without doing something good?
1: Um, I think the the social conscience, like, you know, probably wasn't there as a kid. It was probably like the seed got planted. And that sort of came from um, us traveling back to the UK every second year to see family, to, you know, renew the next two years in Australia with my mum and dad's (laughs) agreement. Um, And doing that in the, you know, late 80s and early 90s, there weren't that many kind of flight, you know, it wasn't wasn't like today where if you're going to London, you fly through Doha or, um, you know, um, somewhere in UAE or Singapore, they're kind of the three, or Thailand or Malaysia, um, they're kind of the the main hubs that you would would transit through today. Back in um, the late 80s and early 90s, we flew through Malaysia, through Zimbabwe, through Egypt, through Japan, and, and every time we'd spend a little bit of time in each of these places, you know, wearing off the jet lag, having a bit of a family holiday and, um, and experiencing a little bit of, you know, what it was like to spend time in that sort of an environment. And that was actually really formative for me as a kid because, um, I started to learn a lot about other cultures and, and, and also kind of realize how fortunate I was to have been born where I was born and that you know, later on in life, realizing that if I'd been born somewhere else, I would not have had the same set of opportunities available to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think I became really interested later on with, you know, getting into a more kind of granular version of that. You know, when you um, when you spend time in Southeast Asia and you cross from one side of a border to the another, you can often see the, the change in the socioeconomic kind of situation that happens when you cross this invisible line. Mm-hmm. So I started to become really interested with why, like how come you've got this, this invisible line that runs through the land and living, you know, a hundred meters on either side of that can start to vastly change the set of opportunities that, that you're able to engage in. Mm. Um, and so that, you know, that's now something that I know is called social mobility, but, but back, back then was sort mm. of just an intrigue. And, um, and I started to, yeah, get really interested with, you know, this, this, building this understanding that actually um, there are a lot of people, billions of people that would never be able to to do what I was able to do and to follow their passion and to um, find what it was that they wanted to bring into the world and that that was actually a, a luxury and a privilege that most people didn't have. And because of that, I believe there's this massive amount of untapped potential that exists in the billions of people that, you know, don't have that luxury of privilege. And if we're able to help those billions of people get to a, a place where they, um, can start to, to do that. I think we've got this huge amount of kind of latent, you know, inventors and scientists and, um, artists and musicians and people that can bring amazing things into the world that today just don't have that opportunity. And so, yeah. Oh, yeah. you know, pretty much everything I do is about how do you start to tap into the the latent kind of potential of the billions of people that, that um, aren't able to access those same opportunities as you know, perhaps you and I are today.
0: Mm. No, that, that's, that really resonates in the sense that, you know, I was brought up in, in Mumbai and in, in Mumbai, you know, talk about social mobility. Sometimes it's just a literal line, a literal street that separates the haves and the had nots, you know. Um,
1: yeah, um, yeah, and s- same in South Africa, <laughs> you know, same in yeah, yeah, lots, lots of, lots of places around the world, you can really see that it's a f- literal, physical line, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, yeah.
0: And also, so maybe thinking back to your life as a kid, you know, we, we, we talked about where some of the motivations came from, but there's is there anything is there an event or experience that you think about or you're drawn or maybe that really presages what you do today?
1: No, it's kind of, um, you know, it was like this 20 year journey of, you know, Mm -hmm. starting with those trips as a seven year old to Egypt and just, you know, being like kind of having my mind blown by, um, the fact that there was this other version of the world that existed that was just so entirely different to what I knew. Um, So it started kind of then, and it wasn't until my mid-20s that I started to really be able to kind of tease it all out. Um, Mm. It's the exact opposite of the who gives a crap story, which is, um, you know, who gives a crap's the product of that 20-year kind of, you know, process of kind of thinking and reflecting and taking it all in. And then one day walking into the bathroom and seeing a six-pack of toilet paper and having a quarter-second business idea epiphany of, you know, sell toilet paper, build toilets, call it who gives a crap. Yeah. knowing that the sanitation problem is, you know, the most off track of all of the development goals and that, mm-hmm. um, yeah, that, you know, it's a huge proportion of the population that's affected by it. Um, so it's kind of, you know, it's almost interesting that I had to have this like 20 year kind of journey to get to mm-hmm. this quarter second epiphany that happened walking into the bathroom one day.
0: <laughs> that that That's funny you should mention that because I think it was Stephen King and he was describing his writing process and he says, you know, he sits at his desk for five hours a day, but nothing comes to him. But then in the last 30 to 40 minutes, you know, a thousand words just flows through. But he said like he needed that five hours to get to that to get to get that 40 minutes.
1: Yeah, that'd drive me crazy and I couldn't do it. But <laughs> <Yeah>. it, sounds, <laughs> it sounds like s- sort of similar. Um, yeah. But yours is 20 but, years. You know, yeah. That five hours I'd need to be like in the garden or like just not, yeah. not sitting in front of a computer doing nothing. Yeah. Um, um,
0: yeah. Right, so, so maybe traveling back again to Perth and like when it came time for you to go to university, um, how did you think about, you know, what you wanted to do and what did you end up doing?
1: Um, so so I always knew when I was a kid that I wanted to leave Perth. I think that's a common <laughs> a common thing yeah. that a lot of Perth kids have. Um, you know, they can't wait to kind of to to be finished at school and to be able to get out or finish mm-hmm. at university and, you know, go go to the big smoke on the other side of the country. Um, so for me that was you know, I knew that from like I was counting down the years from twelve <laughs> until I was yeah. able to to legally leave home. Um mm-hmm. And so I left literally as soon as I could. I think I turned 17, um, you know, November 1st of year 12 and then left on Boxing Day because my parents begged me to stay until Christmas. Um, And so, yeah, so that was, you know, that was a a relatively easy decision to make. I can't remember Mm -hmm. what your question was, though, beyond Perth.
0: Oh, beyond, uh, it was around, uh, when it came to uni, how did you decide which one to do?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So I knew I wanted to be outside of Perth and I should say, I like, I've been back to Perth. I really like Perth, but, um, I think, I think a lot of kids can find it a challenging place to grow up because you are so far away from everything. Mm. Um, and it's easy to feel like you need to have more, which, you know, maybe isn't the best feeling, but that's something else we can unpack later. Um, (laughs) and the, you know, the, I think what I realized, um, when I took my year off, it was 2000. Um, I was living in a house with a stockbroker who lost a ton of money in the tech crash. Um, I, uh, somehow have this very, you know, throughout my life, I've always been very lucky to kind of find these moments where I land on my feet. And that sort of happened in the UK when I ran out of money, you know, I traveled around Europe and kind of did all that stuff that's sort of, you know, the rite of passage, um, and then came back to London. I think I had eighty dollars in the bank, and I was like, "All right, I've either got to find a job this week, or I need to change my plane ticket and fly home." You know, at the end mm. of the week. And that was back when, for some reason, you could change plane ticket dates without you oh, know yeah. any fees and any you know change in change in um, fare difference and all that stuff. Um, Good old days. And so, yeah, somehow um, I got a job at a real estate firm. And the at lunchtime, I was just doing odd jobs. But at lunchtime, I'd jump onto. Um, to a kind of chat room called IRC Mm -hmm. and the real estate firm's boss saw me kind of using this chat room and he's like, hey, you know a lot about the internet. Do you want to build us our website? I was like, sure, if you buy me the software, I'll build you a website. And so through that job, I learned how to kind of, you know, do enough coding to kind of build um, websites and then realized that in 2000, this was a very lucrative kind of (laughs) thing to be able to do. And so I built websites for, you know, a lot of small businesses around London that built up enough money for me to start paying my way through university once I got back a year later. And so in that year, um, I realized that I really liked coding. And so Mm -hmm. I applied to do electrical engineering, which I was told was software engineering, but kind of a bit broader Mm -hmm. and computer science, um, side by side. Um, and yeah, eventually, you know, didn't get into that in Melbourne because I don't think I had the right maths subjects, um, but got into, you know, science and engineering or arts and engineering. And then I was able to transfer after six months into, into computer science and engineering somehow, Mm. um, which I remember was a bit of an ordeal, but, but after taking a year off, um, and learning that I could code and, kind of, if I applied myself, I could kind of do, you know, learn a lot of things that I never thought I'd be able to Built a lot of confidence. And so when I got to university, I realized that actually, if I concentrated (laughs) while I was (laughs) studying, I could get good marks. And so after the first six months, um, you know, I kind of pretty much got kind of straight A's essentially, and then was able to kind of transfer into, into whatever I wanted, which was a good outcome. Yeah.
0: Can can I just jump back to the to the real estate office and uh, the the boss are asking you to build a website, and uh, you just you just jump in. Um, I, I think the the question is around fear and how do you, what's your relationship with fear? Because I think a lot of people would just go, "No, nah, I don't know how to code," you
1: know. Yeah, um, I just I wanna, didn't have it. <laughs> I didn't have, I didn't have fear Fear as a kid. It was just like a, like a missing emotion for me. I think I didn't have a lot of emotions as a kid, um, Mm -hmm. or a lot of, you know, kind of emotional intelligence. So I was missing fear. I was missing, um, yeah, um, probably a lot of empathy as well. So I couldn't read a room particularly well (laughs) and, um, And, uh, and, and, in many ways, you know, they were great assets to have as a, a young person. I got myself into a lot of bad situations too, but, mm-hmm. but, um, yeah, you know, I think, I think, I, uh, you know, to kind of lay out how that decision happened, I knew how to use Photoshop so I could kind of make stuff look good. And then mm-hmm. I just need to figure out how to turn those pixels into something that existed on the internet. And I figured that part couldn't be that, that hard and i had friends that had you know used similar software and so i said can you buy me this software that my friends use i'll ask them a bunch of questions you know find a bunch of online tutorials and i'll figure it out like it can't be that hard if my friends can do it um sure. and so that's kind of the philosophy that we have you know at work now that mm-hmm. nothing is too hard you just have to figure out who are the right people to help you get up the learning curve as quickly as you can and then figure the rest out yourself um and that's you know it's a great fun part of running a business being in a high growth startup it's not for everyone but sure. um but it's yeah it's something that i personally really enjoy and and honestly being a founder a ceo of a high growth startup is it's the one job where you just you just have to learn so much as quickly as you possibly can all the time um mm. and that's a amazing privilege to be able to be in that position
0: yeah i mean it's it, it's also i think um it also I think holds a lot of people back you know it's um, they, they see a problem and think it's too hard and then that's the end of it whereas whereas like you said, you know if it's a problem for you, it's, chances are it's a problem for someone else, and chances are that that person solved that problem so yeah, yeah you do see that and out. I think
1: you know yeah. I think like if you're if you're switched on and you can apply yourself, what I learned that year is if you're switched on and you can apply yourself. You can do anything. You just, you know, you could be a great marketer. You could be a great copywriter. You can do any of those things, but you just have to really focus on figuring out how to do them. And it takes time. You got to learn, you know, spend time doing it and getting it right. Um, of yeah. course, there'll be some things that you're naturally better at. But I think that when you're young, you're pretty placid and you can you can learn a bunch of different stuff and go in a lot of different directions. I think it gets a lot harder to do that as you get older. Um, mm. As, you know, you start to, to you know, have focused in particular areas that make you strong at some things and I think when you get a bit older you also have less tolerance for doing the things that you find frustrating whereas when you're a kid you kind of you know Hmm. grin and bear it a bit more and happy to kind of grind through it um that was my experience anyway sure um and then after uni
0: what did you think about a career like how did you go about thinking about a career or what job to what job to get
1: yeah, so, um, so I had a lot of the risk-taking nature beaten out of me at university. That was maybe when, you know, fear started to become a more of a, like, <laughs> thing that was in my life and, um, mm. you know, I ended up, uh, I sort of talked about this a little bit before, I ended up getting quite good grades at university mm. and when you get good grades in, I ended up also transferring out of computer science and into economics and finance when you get good grades in engineering or commerce, you kind of get told that you need to go and be an engineer or a management consultant or an investment banker or an accountant. Um, I knew I didn't want to be an accountant. The other three, I was like, I don't know enough about these to know whether or not I'd enjoy them. And so I kind of um, took this approach of kind of test and learn and got summer internships had an engineering firm, I got a summer internship in an investment bank and went and spent 3 months in those roles, you know, soaking it all in, seeing who the people were that were kind of, you know, that was what they were um, kind of you know, shooting for in terms of their aspirations and what they wanted to do. It like the big honestly, Yeah, honestly like I had a bit of an allergic reaction. I was like this is not for me. Like I don't <laughs> I don't fit in this mold and I feel, you know, I feel uncomfortable. Um, I'm also not, I don't feel like I can give it my all. I don't, I don't have the motivation to grind it out and, you know, really kind of give it my best shot in this environment, Um, which felt like to me, it was not a good use of my time. I'd rather be somewhere where I was all in and just super excited to, to work on whatever problem I had to solve. And I just didn't get that in this environment where I was essentially just, you know, making money for, for shareholders. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, yeah, that was kind of a big realization that if I didn't like engineering, I didn't like investment banking, I probably wasn't going to like management consulting either. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I had to figure out what it was that I was actually really passionate about. And, Mm -hmm. you know, that was kind of the, the end of that 20 year journey where I started to, or the beginning of the end where I started to reflect on, um, what it was that I'd done in my life that I truly enjoyed and why, and whether there was something in there that I could actually turn into a career versus it just being a, an interest or a passion area. Um, mm-hmm. And that was this realization around you know, social mobility and this draw that I'd had to the developing world after spending a lot of my holidays th- there, you know, through university mm-hmm. um, initially, because it was cheaper for me to live in you know, Southeast Asia or somewhere else than it was to go back to Western Australia which is, you know, where, um, everything costs a lot more. Um, but, you know, eventually realizing that actually it was more than just this kind of selfish pursuit that was drawing me there. There was something kind of academic about it that I found fascinating as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so
0: throughout your, your travels at the time, throughout your travels in Southeast Asia and the third world? Um, Where did you notice the gaps in traditional philanthropy and where, where was that not being, um, I suppose, not being helpful to the, to the local population,
1: if at all. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) there's a lot of gaps in traditional philanthropy. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I think, yeah, I think, you know, one of the, one of, one of those trips, um, I made a point of trying to trying to see what organizations were doing, what work on the ground to try and understand, what good development looks like versus not so good development. And, you know, what was the lay of the land? How did these organizations operate? And what I found was that, um, you know, there were a lot of organizations that d- were doing good work. Um, when you asked them what was holding them back, the most common answer was a lack of funding. Mm-hmm. And um, they were spending about 30% of their time trying to gain funding from different grants or, you know, other funding opportunities, Mm -hmm. not realizing that nine times out of 10, they wouldn't be successful. And, you know, that, that time spent was a huge kind of organizational drain. Um, Mm -hmm. And so what I realized is that they were competing against the same pool of funds that came Mm -hmm. from the philanthropy market that exists from people's donations. And if you're trying to increase the size of that market, you know, try and get more philanthropy dollars flowing into um, that pool, the only way you could do that was by getting people to give more money than what they were today. So if you're trying to double the size of the philanthropy market, you have to get everyone in the market today to double their donations forever, or mm-hmm. find the same number of people who aren't donating to start donating and, and give you know the same amount. And mm-hmm. those two things are impossible. You can't change that behavior in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what I realize is that you know the philanthropy market is is doing a pretty good job like we don't need to grow the size of the philanthropy market if we can tap into the trillions of dollars that are changing hands in the economy and start taking Mm -hmm. a slice of the the profits out of you know the goods and services that are being sold in the economy and funnel those into the same organizations that are generating social impact that are currently just reliant on the philanthropy market and Mm -hmm. so it was sort of this this kind of light bulb moment of you know why, why do we just rely on this when, which in Australia is about $10 billion when there's trillions of dollars over here that are, are changing hands in the economy? You know, we should be thinking about how we can tap into that instead. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, yeah. w- was that also a light bulb moment or, or was that a gradual process that you came to that? That was a
1: light bulb moment where it was okay. like, you know, this is, I can't remember, I w- probably wasn't walking into a bathroom when that one happened. So <laughs> I, I can't remember where or when I was when that happened, but it was, it was mm-hmm. kind of just like, this seems insane. You know, there's, there's a whole lot of the world dedicated to our economy, which is a huge kind of beast and a very mm-hmm. small number of people dedicated to the philanthropy market. Like mm-hmm. what, why, you know, how do we like start to, shift that focus a little bit and um have everyone involved in philanthropy through their purchases rather than Mm -hmm. just once they make enough money that they've got some you know disposable income that they can donate at the end of the financial year um Mm -hmm. so yeah it probably was a little bit gradual but but Mm -hmm. you know it was one of those things that once you see it you can't unsee it like it seems completely insane that we do it the way that we do today
0: Mm. and then how do you go to go about i suppose uh, implementing that or, or, you know, starting a company and and so on?
1: Um, you know, I think we, we had a few different cracks at this kind of same problem. So how do you get more people to engage in, in philanthropic activity? The first was a website called Ripple that um, we founded back in 2007 with, with three other founders. Um, the idea was that it was kind of like a charitable search engine. So you run a search and the revenue from that, that you know, the ads from that search would get directed to a charity that you choose. Um, you could also watch, watch an ad and the revenue from that ad would get directed to a charity that you chose. Um, so the idea there was that we thought more people wanted to engage in philanthropic kind of activities, but they didn't have the capital or the resources to do it themselves. Mm-hmm. What we actually found when we launched it was it appealed to people who were already engaged in philanthropic kind of activities and mm-hmm. so it didn't change the behavior of everyone else. It just made philanthropy more accessible to people that were already interested in it. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So that was a bit of a, a flop. And we, um, you know, we, we mothballed that one. Um, the next business was a nonprofit bar and band room called Shabine, where we sold different yes. beers and wines from all over the developing world And a hundred percent of our profits went back to organizations in each drinks country of origin. Yep. Um, that was a beautiful, a beautiful business that, um, Ran for about three and a half years, had a lot of positive impact on a lot of people, but was always going to be limited in its scalability because it's a bricks and mortar business It's very hard to um, to get um you know someone from Broome in Western Australia into Shebeen in Melbourne to yeah. have an impact with their everyday purchases and maybe they're you know um, from a religion that actually prohibits them from drinking in the first place. Ooh, um, yeah. And so you know, just,
0: you know, uh like for me personally, should has a lot of emotional resonance because it's where I I I suppose, you know, first got inspired by social entrepreneurship thanks to you, but it's also where we first kind of set set off this whole, you know, disruptive business network journey. Like that's yeah. where we first held our events and also, you know, went to a lot of amazing gigs there so that was a really special place for me personally
1: yeah Yeah, thank you it was for me too i think um you know the the unfortunate kind of closure of it happened when we discovered that our very loud band room had a wall that we thought backed onto dirt in the basement but backed onto the sleeping quarters of the police station around the corner from us Um, (laughs) and they made life very difficult for us you know essentially played dirty i'm not going to go into the story but um eventually you know we had to kind of Um, the only responsible thing was to wrap up the business, which was a a total shame because we didn't achieve what we set out to do, especially Mm. in that last year, we lost a lot of money. I lost a lot of money personally because the restrictions the police put on the business made it very hard for us to um, be profitable. Um, Mm. And um, yeah, as a result, you know, the other big learning that came out of it was that hospitality is a very hard industry to make this profit donation model work in because it's Mm -hmm. hugely variable and, if you look at really good hospitality operators, they have a portfolio of businesses, some of which are hyper profitable, some of which are loss making. If your first business is a loss making business, you know you can't build that portfolio, and so you sort of have to get lucky with the first one being hyper profitable to then be able to build a portfolio that has some kind of risk pooling across the assets in the portfolio. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, the the next idea, you know, wanting to escape the limitations of bricks and mortar to be able to service anyone anywhere in a business category that was hyper stable was Mm. to start a toilet paper company. And that's that's kind of how we've ended up where we Mm. are today. (laughs) Awesome, so
0: can I just ask, so with Who Gives a Crap, uh, you know, I suppose, how did you go, how did you think about the brand? Because say prior to Who Gives a Crap, my understanding of toilet paper or a toilet paper brand was puppies and feathers and, and softness rather than, (laughs) rather than, you know, poo really like it's nowhere, nowhere in toilet paper history has anyone mentioned poo ever. I don't think.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, we, we still, I guess we, yeah, I guess crap we do have in our, in our brand name, but Mm. we, we say that our brand name is the, you know, the dirtiest thing that we'll ever say. Um, So, you know, everything else has to be more above the line and, and kind of, <laughs> okay. Um, it can still be funny, but it shouldn't be dirty. Um, that's yeah. kind of how we think about it. Um, so yeah, but who gives a crap brand? I think, you know, as I said before, it was kind of this quarter second business idea epiphany, the brand name, the product and the mm-hmm. cause. And when I called, I literally called three friends as soon as I had the idea for it and they all said, I love it. You've got to do it. It's an amazing idea. I can't believe no one's done it before. And that last piece, I can't believe no one's done it before. If someone says that to you or several people say that to you with a business idea, you know, you're onto something really special because it's you've hit on something that seems so elegant and so simple that, that it should already be in the world. You know, this person Mm -hmm. is saying my version of the world, this should already exist because it's so perfect that it should be here now. Um, and that usually means that you've got something that that people want to tell other people about, which tells you you've got you know the potential for for viral growth, which is exactly what happened in our first two years. We just we just grew you know completely from word of mouth, tripling year on year without doing any marketing or advertising ourselves.
0: Uh, this is this is a leading question because I know the answer. But how did you initially get get the word out?
1: Um, so we <laughs> um, yeah, good, good leading question. We. We started with a, with a crowdfunding campaign um, and the, you know, that was important because I think at the time I had, you know, less than a thousand dollars to my name um, and, you know, a few hundred friends on Facebook who probably wouldn't buy, who gives a crap if I was trying to sell it to them. Um, and so we had to, we had to find, you know, we also need to prove not just that we could get the money that we need to get started, which is why a crowdfunding campaign is a great way to get started. We need to find our first 1,000 customers. And probably more importantly, we knew we had to put tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of eyeballs on what we're doing for people to see it and tell us whether this was a good idea or a silly idea. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we ran a crowdfunding campaign. Someone working on the campaign called Lock Hall, who um, has gone on to sort of make a career out of creating viral moments, most recently with his own brand called Vacation Sunscreen in the US, which had an incredible kind of viral launch campaign. Um, Mm -hmm. he was working on the crowdfunding campaign and said, there's something missing from this. And then a few days later came back and said, I've got it. You need to shoot the campaign with you sitting on a toilet and you should pledge to not get off that toilet until you hit the $50,000 pre-sales target. And -hmm. it was this beautiful, um, moment where, you know, it was one of those ideas that again was just like, this is perfect. Like, I can't say no to this. It's going to be horrible, but, but it's, you know, it's so, simple and elegant in its execution that, that we need to make it happen. Um, and so, yeah, we launched, you know, on Tuesday morning at 6am, um, in the middle of July, in the middle of winter in Australia, um, and weren't quite sure what was going to happen. Luckily the share button had been added to Facebook, you know, only recently kind of before Mm -hmm. then. Um, and so it just kind of took off as a viral campaign we ended up national television, national print in Australia, print in the U S Did 2.5 million social media impressions. And, um, Mm -hmm. after I think we we were embedded onto the homepage of the largest Latin American newspaper with our webcam of me sitting on a toilet was kind of on the homepage (laughs) of this newspaper when you went to El Globo or whoever it was. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, we were crazy popular in Brazil and Greece, which we still haven't figured out exactly why those two markets. Um, Mm But after 50 of the most horrible, never ever to be repeated hours of my life, we hit that pre-sales target of $50,000 and we were in business, which was an amazing outcome.
0: <laughs> That's incredible. It's an incredible story. And also like the video itself is a work of genius. And uh, you know, what I didn't know about you was that you were born in England. And uh, now thinking back on that video, it has a very British humorous.
1: Yeah. Something. <laughs> <laughs> Almost yeah, there is something, there's <laughs> a some, something about our brand that's definitely kind of, you know, somewhere between Britain and Australia. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um,
0: so then that, that video, I think that really got the, the company rolling. And um, I suppose besides being a, a brand and, and a physical product, like who gives a crap? In a way, is also a logistics company. Yeah. Um, so, so, initially, how did you how did you set set that up?
1: Um, honestly, it was really hard. Back in two thousand and twelve in Australia, e-commerce was like <laughs> <laughs> garbage. Um, <laughs> you couldn't. You know, we had to set up a, a network of couriers. We had about nine couriers that we meshed together across the country to give us national distribution. Um, we knew that we could ship to most of the Eastern seaboard without too many problems. Western Australia was a bit of a nightmare for us. So, um, luckily, you know, I grew up there my parents still lived there, so I could send pallets of toilet paper on the train. My dad had recently train. semi-retired and said, yeah, so yeah train, cause it's about 10 times more efficient than a boat, which is about 10 times more efficient than a truck from a carbon perspective. Um, mm. so love trains from a kind of supply chain environmental kind of angle, um, and then, yeah, Dad would receive these pallets of toilet paper and put them into our family van and drop them off to people around perth to to be our kind of satellite warehouse um, and that was That was how we got started um, and then eventually, you know we opened up our second warehouse in Perth, our third warehouse in Brisbane, then somewhere you know Sydney Hobart, adelaide, Canberra kind of all happened shortly after that um, and having that mesh of you know that network of warehouses is actually really critical from an environmental perspective because um, ship miles are eight to 10 times more efficient than truck miles. So we're able to ship product into Australia from overseas into our different ports and then deliver to our customer from there. And from a carbon perspective, that's you know, roughly the same transport footprint as it would be to manufacture in a single location in Australia and truck product all around the country. Um, so um, yeah, we knew we had to get to kind of six warehouses roughly to be able to get that, that carbon equation to work.
0: Sure. Um, just shifting gears a, a little bit, um, uh, when you, when you first started, did the
1: term social entrepreneur exist? Um, yeah, I think it probably, it probably did. Um, I remember someone saying it in kind of 2007, 2008, um, mm. The term direct consumer definitely didn't. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that, that happened, you know, 2014, 2015, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, the, yeah, the world was a really different place. Um, sure. The internet was a very different place as well. Yeah, mega upload, yeah. you know, they were still around. <laughs> um,
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, like looking back now, what, what do you think uh, people get most wrong about social entrepreneurship or setting up a social entrepreneurship? Company.
1: um i mean i think i think what what we did that's been really successful is um, we took all of the traditional tools that are available to for-profit businesses and then we twisted them by putting the non-profit kind of you know 50% donation model into the the same kind of shell um, mm-hmm. and that's been incredible because we you know we can use we can sell equity, we can do all this stuff that's kind of you know there's a very well honed kind of playbook that comes with building businesses that are for profit um, because um, you can throw money at them and uh, you know try to make them happen really fast. We didn't do that. we bootstrapped our business, but mm-hmm. it meant that we had all of the same tools available to us through that journey that that allowed us to, you know, see who was the best in the world and, and figure out what they were doing and apply that to our business and then try different stuff to find new ways to to push the boundaries. Um, and so I think that's what's made us really, you know, it's kind of our special source in a way is that we took that toolkit and we made it better by, by having an, a social element kind of built into the business. Mm-hmm. Um, and so everything was built for scale. You know, we knew that... <laughs> if we're trying to solve the sanitation problem, you have to be a business that's doing 10, $10 plus billion dollars of revenue a year. We're Mm -hmm. certainly not doing that now. We're not going to get there next year, but that's, you know, where we want to be in 30 years time. Um, And to do that, you have to, you know, you have to kind of use the the traditional kind of tools that are available, I think. Mm. Um, And so from, yeah, from very early on, we knew that scale was important. And as a result, we had to really kind of focus on on building that scale from day zero. Yeah.
0: But I also think that, you know, who gives a crap at the end of the day, you know, uh, outside of the, the social impact that you have is an amazing product, you know, just by itself in that, uh, it's, it's like when I get it, it's not so much a box of toilet paper. It's almost like a box of candy. You know, it's a, it really evokes a sense of joy and, and, you know, everything yeah. you do
1: with yeah, the brand. You. I mean, yeah. um, <laughs> We're we're redoing our wrapper designs at the moment, which I think are even more kind of candy licious. So um I'm looking forward to hearing what you think when that happens in, you know, March or April next year. Um Mm -hmm. But but yeah, I think, you know, the when we started out we said we've got to sell it for the same price or less, the -hmm. same quality or better, and we can't use guilt to motivate sales. They were kind of the three rules. Mm -hmm. I think we've we've probably evolved a little bit since then. You know, I think occasionally guilt is actually okay. You don't want to do it every day of the week, but but there are moments where um where guilt can be appropriate. Um and I think the you know the other big thing's been a focus on quality. So um you know the oh we already talked about quality. Sorry. The other big thing has been um yeah, maybe that's it. <laughs> <Yeah>. But but <laughs> I think what what we what we did was we know, a lot of the innovation was actually around the customer experience rather than the physical product itself. Um, So, you know, we said, we don't need a five-ply or an eight-ply toilet paper, but we can innovate with packaging, with delivery, with impact, with um, customer experience when something goes wrong with our communications, with our email receipts. These are all kind of places where no one has innovated before. And if you put that all together, you create something that feels materially different to when you go and purchase at the shops. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's, that's been a big part of our success. And I think you know, the business could have been successful if you took away the social impact, it wouldn't be as successful. It's a mm-hmm. key part of you know, what keeps people coming back and really falling in love with the brand. Um, mm-hmm. But it, you know, we, we wanted to build something that could stand up without the impact piece being there. And then layer the impact piece in as just the the cream on top, essentially of of what's hopefully an amazing customer experience.
0: Sure. Can we can we briefly touch on the impact? Like, uh, so in you've been going for about eight or nine years now.
1: Yeah, um, we've been trading consistently for yeah, a bit over nine years.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. And in that time, what has the impact been in terms of your your social mission?
1: Yeah, so total donations are a bit up over about eleven million Australian dollars now, um, which you know we're really proud of. Um, That five point eight five million dollar donation we were able to make in twenty twenty is obviously a big chunk of that. It's about half of it, which is um, just an incredible year that we were having a great year coming into February and then what happened from March to June, you know, no one could have predicted. So I think we were on track to make our first multi-million dollar donation that year. And then it just kind of got bigger and bigger. Um, so yeah, I think, um, we're incredibly proud of where we, where we're at, you know, reaching a million dollars for the first time was amazing because there's, you know, a million is a big number. <laughs> um, and, um, that said, you know, we are trying to make sure that 2 billion people who don't have access to a toilet today will have it at some point in the future. And $10 million doesn't go very far when you're trying to solve a problem that affects 2 billion people. So we do know that we've got a long way to go to kind of reach that goal. And as I talked about before, it means getting Mm -hmm. revenue up into the tens of billions of dollars, which means donations up into the, you know, hundreds of millions or billions. Um, Mm -hmm. and that's, um, going to take a while to get there, but but yeah. super exciting problem to attack and see if we can solve. Uh,
0: and also, so I think it was last year that you did do a significant raise. Um, how how open were investors to this model? And do you, do you sense a shift in, in capitalism, you know, the way capitalism is, is conducted? Mm.
1: Um, yeah, I mean, I think how open were investors? I think... Um, You know, we still, we probably saw that investors were more open to it in certain geographies. So th- I think this kind of idea of purpose-driven brands resonates more in Australia and in the UK and Europe than it does in America. Um, mm-hmm. That's not to say there aren't people that it resonates really strongly with in America, but it's all, you know, it's a bit like attitudes towards sustainability. The UK is a bit further ahead than Australia. The US is a bit further behind mm-hmm. um, in many ways, I sort of think there's something similar going on with kind of the recognition of the power of purpose. Mm -hmm. Um, but in general, you know, if we'd gone to that same set of investors when we were getting started 10 years ago and said, Hey, we want to start a toilet paper company, give away half of our profits. It's called, Who gives a crap. Can you write us a check? They would have (laughs) said, hell no. Like that is not an investable company. Mm -hmm. Um, and so we had an amazing response from investors. You know, we did we did a lot of reverse due diligence before we got started to make sure we were talking to the right people. Mm-hmm. Um, but the response was, was, you know, really, I think better than what we could have anticipated. Um, maybe cause we had PTSD from, you know, being told that, that we weren't an investable idea from many years earlier. Um, but mm-hmm. it sort of, you know, it showed that change from sort of the attitude 10 years ago to, when we did the raise um mm-hmm. it showed that there is this massive shift in the way that that capitalism is unfolding and mm-hmm. there is a huge evolution underway and so i think that you know, what makes me most excited is actually thinking about what that means for the businesses of the future kind mm-hmm. of 10 20 years from now that will be able to innovate in ways that we can't imagine today because um yeah capital markets are, are mm-hmm. accepting that this is actually a a thing that makes sense, which is kind of cool.
0: I think also there's a shift in the way consumers respond to to products. Um, yeah, yeah. Like, um, I, I think that you know, consumers in not a, you know, paint too broad a stroke, but con- consumers in general are, I suppose, tilting towards products like "Who Gives a Crap," where there is, there is, you know, goodness at the end at the end of that purchase, which was. You know, which was never an option before.
1: Yeah, Yeah, I think... um, I I sort of feel like the consumer sentiment's a bit different because I sort of feel like that sentiment was always there. But um, until, you know, 2015, it was very hard to launch new brands and bring them out into the world. Mm -hmm. And so I feel like there was this latent consumer demand that existed that Who Gives a Crap was able to tap into. Whereas what's happened in capital markets you know that i don't think there's been a latent e s g investor um that that whole period. I think that actually you know investors have started to realize that 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 purpose is a very powerful part of the capitalist toolkit in a yeah. way that um that they didn't ten or twenty years ago um it's probably that's probably a slightly simplified view of the world of course there mm-hmm. has been a lot of latent e s g investors who literally can't find places to put their money so Maybe sure. I'm wrong, um, but you know, we, we weren't selling a product that a capital market, you know, a public market investor could invest in. So I probably don't know enough about the yeah. public markets to know whether I'm being truthful or misleading. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, well, a couple of questions just to finish
0: up, Simon. Thank you again for, for your time. But uh, you're now, I suppose, you know, the head of an organization and this, this podcast is about meaningful work. Um, and of course, you know, what you do has a really strong purpose in that it's, there's a clear causal line between what you do and the good it's having in the world. But besides that, how do you ensure that people who work for you, uh, have meaningful work?
1: Um, how do we ensure they have meaningful work? Um, So just in terms of how
0: you set up your culture or, you know.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think, um, I think that starts with getting the right people into the business, Mm -hmm. um, which sounds strange when you're talking about an individual having meaningful work, but a big part of meaningful work is the output of the work or the outcome of the work that you're working on, but Mm -hmm. it's also the people that you work with. Um, and so I really think it's about, you know, making sure that you've got a group of people who, um, are excited to work together to solve a problem together um, mm-hmm. just as much as it is about making sure that you've got a problem that people really care about and find meaningful. And so the first step is, you know, are we hiring people who have the right set of values that um, will therefore exhibit the behaviours that we need to see in order to to build a workplace where people can do meaningful work together? And then mm-hmm. the, the second part of that is, what is the meaningful work? What are we trying to achieve that's meaningful? Mm -hmm. And, you know, for us, um, everyone in the company would be able to tell you that our mission is to make sure everyone in the world has access to a toilet and clean water. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it becomes our job to figure out how we build the right KPIs, the right OKRs, whatever goal setting framework you're using um, so that people understand how the work that they're doing today and this week and this quarter Is laddering up to what we're trying to achieve this year to get to our five-year vision to get to our 30-year goal of everyone in the world with access to a toilet Mm -hmm. um so that's probably how i'd think about it
0: (laughs) and um i suppose finally maybe you've answered it in part but this podcast is is called on meaningful work um how would you define that term on meaningful work
1: um I don't know if I could define it. It's like, to me, meaningful is such a personal, a personal kind of thing that um, what's meaningful to one person is just entirely different to to someone else. Um, and so, yeah, I guess it's it's kind of doing work that fills your cup up, but everyone's mm. got a cup that gets filled up by something different. So. Um, yeah. That's probably the most simplistic view of the world, but, but yeah, um, or maybe, maybe it's, yeah, yeah, maybe it's doing work that, that, you know, you're excited to get out of bed and jump into. Um, but, but what that work is will be different for each person. Sure.
0: Or maybe framed a little differently. What advice would you give someone who is, who comes to you and asks you know, uh, how do you find meaningful work?
1: Um, I mean, I think, I think, you know, like, a, call me an economist, but the, the I don't think you know what it is until you try it. And so I think you need to take enough shots to have one hit bullseye. And so to me, that means, you know, creating a short list of things that you think might be interesting and then going and trying them and understanding, you know, taking note of what is good and what's not, you know, what is meaningful and what's not meaningful and then trying to optimize and iterate and get closer with each iteration to being, you know, in the right meaningful place the next time around. Mm-hmm. Um, that's kind of how I started my career. It was, you know, I want to go and do three months as a summer internship here, three months there. Neither of them are right. What's the next thing Went and did three months somewhere else got me one step closer and then eventually kind of figured out, well, you know, here's the thing that got me one step closer. How do I kind of turn that bit up and turn the other stuff down? Um, and so, Yeah, I dunno, you kind of have to it's not A B test, that's more of an on off test style um approach to finding meaningful work.
0: The uh the lean startup model of designing your Yeah.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Totally. Yeah, test and Hmm. learn. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. All right. But but most, you know, most employees would hate you if you do that. So (laughs) (laughs) So get get internships or doesn't look good on your C V either. Yeah. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Um but uh, thank you so much for doing this, Simon. Uh, I, I think uh, it's fair to say that uh, throughout this journey, you know, you, someone who's, for me at least, has set the template for what what it would mean to be someone who's doing meaningful work. Um, and also, you know, just just for your time today, and, and also when we were starting off, you know, all those years giving us uh, giving us access to space, and you know, you you also spoke at our first meetup. So just for all of that thanks
1: heaps Mm. yeah no thank you um it's lovely to hear and you know huge fan of kind of the ecosystem and everything that's kind of come out of all of the work that you guys have put into it so um whatever i can do to help with that happy to do it yeah awesome thank you so much thanks
0: thank you for listening to this podcast if you're enjoying and are learning from this podcast please subscribe on youtube apple and spotify a great zero-cost way to support us is to leave a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. If you are feeling extra generous, it'd be great if you could leave a comment or feedback on our Apple Podcast or YouTube pages. Or you could email your comments and feedback to me directly at Rahul at disruptivebusinessnetwork dot com. That's R A H U L at disruptivebusinessnetwork all one word dot com. Finally, a big shout out to our producer Dan Scahill for his work on the keys and to Vashti Civil for writing the original music for our theme. Until next time, this is your host, Rahul Sones signing off. Bye.